The trick is that when the music comes by your house, you have to have the lights on and the doors open. That was the late David Crosby. I'm Sam Dingman, and this is The Midnight Disease. W-A-L-T, it's the Midnight Disease. Sam Dingman coming to you on the Electro Voice RE20 via the Grace M501, the Harrison 32 EQ, and the RNC 500 analog tones. On a Monday afternoon in the moon cabin, Kevin Allison is on the show today, folks. A true podcast legend, true storytelling legend, and deeply thoughtful and reflective person, as you will hear in just a few minutes. I loved this conversation so much. I have admired Kevin for years, for all of the 14 years that he has been doing the Risk podcast. I have been a fan of that podcast. I have had the great pleasure of being on the podcast a couple of times. I have gone to see live shows that he does here in New York City at Caveat. I met my fiancé because of the Risk podcast. You can actually hear me tell (laughs) the story of how I met her uh, on the Risk podcast, which is very meta, but hopefully charming for you to hear. Anyway, Kevin created something revolutionary with Risk. He created a space for people to share stories from very extreme moments in their lives. Stories, as he puts it, they never thought they would dare to share. These are, in some cases, stories about extreme forms of sexuality. These are stories about brushes with violence. These are stories about epic family betrayals. These are stories about confronting horrifying racial animus. But the thing that's really amazing about Risk, as a listening experience, it does not feel extreme. It doesn't feel like you're being challenged. Like, can you handle this? This stuff is, this stuff is intense. It's not like that. It's the most human show you've ever listened to. And it's human in a way that's different from the kinds of first-person narratives you hear in places like This American Life or The Moth. No shade to either of those shows. Those are two of my other favorites. But the thing about Risk is that Kevin and his team, since the beginning, have had this ability to find the beautiful and the transcendent in the midst of the most messy things it's possible for people to go through and to combine that messiness with the elegance of storycraft to create an emotionally jarring connection with the listener that is unlike anything you're going to feel when you listen to anything else. And that all starts with Kevin, because he's not just the curator of the show. He's not just the host of the show. He doesn't just workshop the stories with the storytellers. Kevin sets the tone for all that by telling his own stories on 
the podcast. And I don't know any other way to say it other than when you listen to Kevin's stories, you think, I have never heard anything like this before, but I have felt all of these things before. I relate to everything Kevin is saying, even if I have never done anything like anything Kevin is talking about. And an artist who can make you feel that way is a master. That is, that is one of the signs of mastery. Kevin is a storytelling master. And you're going to hear that in this conversation, I think, because he even answers questions in little stories. The arc of every one of his answers to my questions seemed to me, to, listening back to it, to have a beginning, middle, and end. And what excited me the most about the chance to sit down with Kevin and talk about all this is that he seems to understand at a cellular level through a lot of reflection and and difficult times, as you will hear about, where he got the impulse to tell and celebrate stories like this and what keeps him coming back to it. Why, after 14 years of doing this, he does not yet feel like he has achieved everything creatively that he wants to achieve in this medium. And this is in spite of the fact that the Risk podcast is as successful as podcasts can be. Millions of downloads. It has been turned into a book. They have sold out live shows all over the country all the time. But he's still doing it. And there are plenty of artists who are successful at expressing their vision. But you don't meet that many who have the level of fluency with their internal compass as Kevin does. And I am very excited to share our conversation with you right now. Kevin Allison, welcome to The Midnight Disease. Oh, thank you so much. I have so many questions for you, uh, but the question I always like to start with is um, if you think about the phrase, the midnight disease, as it relates to your process as an artist, what comes to mind? What does Kevin Allison look like in the throes of the midnight disease? You know, it's so funny because what it brings to mind is a poem by Anne Sexton called The Ambition Bird, uh, which starts with the line, so it has come to this. <laughs> <laughs> she's bitching about the fact that it's 3 a.m. Uh-huh. and she's writing a fucking poem. <laughs> <laughs> and do you do you relate to that? Does that feel relatable to you? Yeah, you know, like it was in it wasn't until 2019 that I got diagnosed with ADHD. And it was very funny the way that it happened because I told some story on risk. I have no idea what one it was or or maybe it was just something I said in the hosting. And a fan wrote in, Kevin, don't you realize you have ADHD? <laughs> and I texted a friend of mine because we were texting back and forth when I read that email. I had known this friend since college, so 30 some years or something. And I said, ha, 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 Smith, isn't this funny? This fan just wrote in, don't you realize you have ADHD? And he texted back, Kevin, you don't realize that? <laughs> 
So I was like, oh my God, I, I better find the, the best of the best in New York City because this is the sort of thing everyone talks about. So you don't want to get a kook right. and get misdiagnosed. Totally. So I went to the guy at NYU, um, a super big expert on this, and got diagnosed. And ever since then, I've just been overwhelmed, <laughs> as one with ADHD is. <laughs> Perpetually. <laughs> By all of the details about this, uh, about it, and, and, and all of a sudden, so many of the stories of my life make a new kind of sense. I had just always thought, oh, I'm just like super... I don't know, unpredictable and weird and, and, and particular about the way I do things. Uh -huh. And yeah, when I think of like the midnight disease, I think of the fact that if I'm going to work on a story or come up with a new character or, you know, come up with a new idea of any sort of creative project to work on, I'm my process. <laughs> <laughs> My process is going to be whatever the hell, you know, when it comes and how it comes is, is going to be rather higgledy-piggledy, you know? <laughs> um, it's, it's I, I think, harder and harder for everyone to maintain deep focus on, on anything nowadays just because sure. of the way the world is designed and because just staying financially, you know, just, just keeping a roof over your head is so challenging in so many ways. So I remember when I was at NYU in film school, that was when the phrase guerrilla filmmaking was popular. Okay. And it just made it hip, this idea of indie filmmakers, they get the film made by any means necessary. <laughs> you know, like we thought of ourselves as like going to war, you know. And and that's what it was like. I remember some of those film projects, you know, in my, especially in senior year, where Everyone was up for like a week straight yes. and you were just finding locations or props or whatever, wherever you possibly could. And ironically, that's one of the things that MTV appreciated the most about us. They, they were like, oh, we can pay these kids $500 a week right? and they can find their own damn props and location. <laughs> right, right. And and us there is the state. Yes, 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 yeah, yes. yeah, 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 yeah. So that's fascinating. So part of what MTV was reacting to was you all's um, familiarity with um, being creative from a place of necessity. Yeah, a kind of scarcity mindset around making things. Yeah, and so, and they were so not into paying people or giving people benefits. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> So that's really um, interesting to me that you are now coming into this awareness of yourself as a person with this very specific condition. Because if I'm hearing you right, you have not, for your life as a creative person, had some sort of specific ritual. Like, I get up, I write from 5 a.m. to 7.30, I, then I make a certain blend of coffee and eat a certain kind of oatmeal, that sort of thing. You know, it's, I feel like, for example, uh, it's 2023, I'm about to turn 53 in February, and 
this week is just another week where I'm working on that. You know what I mean? Like, like uh, for the past you know few days, I've been like, all right, I'm going to meditate for 20 minutes each morning. And, you know, I, like, I just feel like I am always a work in progress. And one of my problems since I was a child is not having – enough of a sense of everything being a process and that being okay. I I, rem- mm. I was hugely affected by the movie Amadeus when I was 14 or 15 years old. Um, it just struck terror in my heart because it presented this idea. And Twyla Tharp, who was the choreographer for the film, she expressed this. She said, I adored working on that movie. It's so brilliant. I just cringe that it gives people the impression that talent is, you know, like just whatever you you have talent or you don't. And, Mm -hmm. and, and that Mozart didn't have to really work. It was just God talking through him, you know? Right. Um, That's Salieri's uh, point of view in the movie. He's so jealous of this guy who supposedly doesn't need to write second drafts. It just all uh-huh. pours out of him. Uh-huh. And and Salieri is just like filled with worries about the limits of his talent. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what does he have to do to like break through and finally just have this thing that'll be an overnight success for him? Uh-huh. And at the end of the movie... He looks right into the camera, breaks the fourth wall, and says, mediocrity, I am your patron saint. And that moment terrified me as a kid because that was always my worry. My feeling was, I have talent, but probably only a very limited amount of it. So I have to prove to people that I have it, but... I can't overstep. I can't take big risks and try something really hard and show people that I don't have enough talent. And that limited mindset is so screwy. It, it, you know, if if people had known, no, no, Mozart had to work yes. his ass off. Like he Absolutely. literally crippled his hand. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, yeah, like I, I – Grew up thinking you focus for a little bit, come up with something brilliant because God likes you and gave you a brilliant idea, show it to the world, and you're done. You rest on your laurels, right? Instead of, no, you practice, you practice, you practice, you practice. You come out with something, it's probably going to need a lot more work, Mm -hmm. you know? Like when I started doing solo shows after the state broke up in my uh, late 20s, early 30s, I would write a show, Uh perform it about 10 times, and be like, all right, that's it, Uh you know? Uh Whereas, like, someone like Berbiglia or Chris Gethard, you can watch them just, like, workshop and workshop and workshop and workshop and workshop, Uh and the thing just changes and changes and changes depending on context and everything Mm -hmm. until it's a whole, until it can be on a Broadway stage, you know? And they've even monetized the idea 
that you would want to come and be a part of that process. Yeah, that, I think that's brilliant. Yes, and I say that as somebody who has bought those tickets. Like, I've gone to see Berbiglia doing his workshop shows where he says to you, you're seeing a rough draft. Eventually, it's going to be different. You are a part of my discovery. Yeah. And it, I mean, it doesn't feel crass. I don't mean to suggest that. It feels like an oh, invitation no. to the reality that um, is not acknowledged about Mozart in right. the framework you were describing. Yeah. You know, like, I do feel that with, you know, the state head of philosophy don't do too much studying or research, just do it and learn by doing. And thank God at least for that. But but I wish more of it had rubbed off on me. I think I didn't believe that so much because we didn't have Second City or um, IO or, or mm -hmm. UCB or anything like that at the time. So we really were creating sketch comedy out of instinct and out of having seen The Muppet Show and Saturday Night Live and Monty Python when we were kids, you know? Right. Um, and so we learned by doing. And then the guys who went on from the state to create Reno 911 had the same philosophy about improv. They were like, we've never taken a class in improv. Right. But we're going to create an improvised show by doing it. Uh -huh. And so finally I got that when I started Risk. Yeah. Um, I had told my very first true story on stage in front of an audience uh, at UCB one night, and it was such a eureka moment for me that I had the whole idea of creating risk that night and just decided, yeah, yeah, I'm going to learn storytelling by creating a podcast, uh, doing it. And Nowadays, I do worry about listening back to some of my oldest stories on the show because, you know, I feel like I've always been learning by doing mm -hmm. with the show. But I really feel like that attitude is – and another thing I'll do is that I'll redo stories sometimes. Uh -huh. You know what I mean? Like uh -huh. I'll, I'll be like, well, here's a totally different version of that story mm -hmm. and – Put it out on the podcast just the same or remove the old version and replace it with the new one, you know, <laughs> yes. like just allowing your, yourself to fail publicly or, or, or not be perfect publicly. I think that's a that's a yes. very valuable thing to, to learn. Yeah. Well, and I mean, I would imagine, too, because of the openness that you bring to your hosting and the spirit you create around risk there's an affinity amongst the listenership and the fans of the show with the idea that um, risk vulnerability is baked into the entire premise. Yeah. And so you showing that around uh, your own work on the show affirms that for them and makes them, I would think, feel invited in more. But of course, the catch there, and this is where I want to go back to 14 or 15-year-old Kevin. Mm-hmm is that the stories still have to be really good. You know what I mean? Right. And that, that does come to whatever God-given universe bestowed ability to tell stories you do have. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, um, I am weirdly perfectionistic about... 
about what I normally do when I'm working on a story is to first sit down with GarageBand in front of me and start speaking the story as if I'm telling it to someone. Okay. Um, I have this like archetypal audience in my head now from just sitting and talking into the microphone to the risk audience all the time. They're like a part of my head, you know? And so I'll start telling a story in front of a microphone and understand that this first telling is going to be messy and, and too long. But once I've got this big shaggy mess of a story, Uh, you know, it might be 25 minutes long or something like that. Then I'll listen back and I'll start transcribing the parts that feel like, oh, I I was on the right track there. Uh And, oh, I I can word that differently as I'm transcribing it here Uh and begin to work together something like a script. And the tricky part of it all is in the rehearsing of it, I'll get to know the script, but not want to be married to it word for word. Yes. So I have so many questions about what you've just described. One is um, when you sit down to begin that first shaggy dog draft Mm -hmm. and you picture the archetypal audience in your mind, what are you – are you picturing a – the lights are down and you're at caveat and you're speaking out to a darkened auditorium? No. No, I think that I'm I think that I'm kind of talking, you know, I think that I'm always kind of talking to someone. <laughs> <laughs> like like I was just telling you the past few days I have sat down to meditate and notice that I'm always having conversations with a friend or a lover or or whoever. Uh-huh. So I I don't picture it that specifically. Okay. There was a time I remember when I I did the story Kevin goes to kink camp which is like a maybe an 80 or 90 minute story on risk once and it's a radio style story so it's not meant to be performed live in front of it. I mean it could at some point but uh, it was meant to just be directly to the podcast audience. And for that one, I I was a little bit afraid that a lot of people would be wigged out by me talking so explicitly about the sex that I was witnessing that weekend that I was at this kink camp. Um, And just wanted to make sure that I (laughs) (laughs) that I sounded as, you know, personable and everything as I could. So I put a picture of JC Cassis, who is like my best friend and Uh like the producer of the podcast on the laptop and was kind of pretending I was telling the story to her. So it was like, so JC, so we come into the camp (laughs) and there's this woman being tied to a tree. (laughs) JC, can you believe this? I love knowing that. I love knowing that because um, we'll get to this, but I listened to Kevin Goes to King Camp again yesterday. Oh, wow. For the first time in 10 years. Wow. Um, I remember the first time I listened. I know this is something you hear all the time uh, is that people listening to Risk in public settings in headphones (laughs) and thinking like if they knew what I was hearing right now. Um, And I remember the first time I listened to it, I was at work um, and got such a thrill out of the idea that I was in this very stodgy corporate environment and I was listening <laughs> uh, to this story. Um, but the thing that I really noticed yesterday 
was you preface that story by saying, this story is extreme even for Risk. Mm. Um, and I know at that point, uh, Risk was only maybe two or three years old. Right, right. Um, so then there have been many more extreme stories since then. But um, you say to everybody, hold on to your butts, basically. <laughs> like, <laughs> this is about to get very graphic. But then you go into it, you say that like sort of as a precaution, but then you go into it and you're still just you. Yeah. You're still just you speaking in your voice. And now I know it's just like you're telling JC the story. Mm-hmm. And it has the effect of making me as a listener feel like no matter where we go on this story, you're not trying to shock me. Right. You're not trying to scare me. You're just relating. Yeah. And it's like we could be relating over um, laying down on the anal probe table, mm-hmm. which is what happens in the story. <laughs> but based on the way you're communicating, it, we could just as easily be relating over um, your recording process for a podcast. It's yeah. the same Kevin. Yeah. Um, and I'm – so I one of the reasons I asked this question is like, how did you find the ability to do that, to be same Kevin? Yeah. You know <laughs> – and it's been a very, very that also has been such a process because, you know, Michelle Walson was the in the producer role at the very beginning of Risk. Okay. And now she's a story coach for us and she's phenomenal. Um, but in the beginning, she was like my partner, you know, uh, before she went to grad school and st- started making movies. Uh, and she would give me feedback after we do a risk live show. I, at first I thought, at first I thought this show was going to be weekly and that I was going <laughs> to tell a news story every week. Um, so we were in that phase, the very beginning of the show and she would give me feedback. I, I'll never forget. Like, uh, I had told some sort of kinky story early on and she explained to me, well, you gotta kind of like let the audience feel like they're okay with you and like you're friendly and like you got to kind of introduce people to how you kind of became introduced to that part of yourself, Uh you know? Uh And another thing she said to me at a, a, a slightly later show, just a couple shows later was, I kind of feel like you're speaking to the audience now after doing that, after, after you know, teaching me to wear a little bit more kid gloves, uh, she was saying, now I kind of feel like you're talking to the audience like they're kindergartners. <laughs> 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 so it really is a process of speaking into the listening and then getting feedback back mm-hmm. and adjusting over time. The this episode of Risk, another one that people still respond to so much to this day, is an episode called Try, which was several months before Kevin Goes to King Camp, where I was so distraught over people writing in that they love the podcast but hate Kevin Allison. Uh, there were people – I remember one fella said that I sounded like 
a pubescent Rush Limbaugh oh my oh my announcing a monster truck show. Um, Side note, who doesn't want to listen to that? <laughs> <laughs> um, it's a great character. <laughs> um, and, you know, yeah, yeah. Lots of um, criticisms of like, oh, I don't know, the way I laugh or mm-hmm. the way I enunciate or all these sorts of things. And they were making me very self-conscious. And so on this particular day, it was time for me to record the podcast, and I decided to just have a heart-to-heart with the audience and admit to them that that stuff was um, hurting me and that in the process of recording that monologue, I was coming around to kind of realizing right in front of everyone, and that's the reason this podcast exists, Yes, is because I wanted to create... A place where people can be messy, uh-huh. make mistakes, um, show parts of their self they're not used to showing in public. And it might be kind of warts and all feeling and, and, and it might be kind of clunky at times. But the more we do that, the more easily it starts to come out of us, you know, yes. a more integrated version of ourselves that we're able to put out there in the world. Well, this goes back to this idea of your ADHD um, journey with Mm -hmm. yourself to me, because one of the other questions that that brings up for me is, if I'm hearing you right, your process as an artist has sort of been about living into your intention to create and then as you discovered storytelling, recognizing that storytelling was an ideal container for your experience of living into these intentions. Yeah. And it make and and so I think, you know, as somebody who has had the uh, great privilege of being on the show, a huge differentiator of being a storyteller on risk <laughs> as opposed to other storytelling shows is that you and your team actually work with the storytellers to say, give us the disparate pieces of this experience. Give us the core emotional realities. And we will help you create a an elegant multi-act structure mm. out of those experiences. Um, and so it, you'll get both to feel like you are sharing from that most raw vulnerable place, but that you're not just doing it in a sloppy way where it's it's like you're just dropping your pants in front of everybody and going sorry yes <laughs> you know? yes yes that that is the kind of um paradox of it is and and I've always been keenly aware of that that on the show I myself have always been trying to take masks off mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, trying to be artful about it. <laughs> yes. Well, so this is the question for me then is like, how, because in order to do that for the storytellers you have on the show, you first had to learn to do it for yourself. Mm-hmm. And I want to go back to this moment, because I've heard you tell this story about the night you had the idea for Risk. Mm-hmm. And please tell me if I'm misquoting it, but it was that you uh, you got invited to do this um true sex stories show with Margot Lightman mm-hmm. 
and you did the story about the first time you prostituted yourself. Mm -hmm. And right up until the moment of the show, you didn't want to do it. Mm -hmm. And then you told Margot and she said, no, no, just push through, just do it. And afterwards, it was like the veil fell from your eyes and you were like, this is it. Yeah. But what's interesting to me about that is so much of great art and about risk specifically as a project is about following impulses. Mm. And yet this was a moment where you had such a strong impulse against doing the performance, but it turned out to be the right answer creatively. Yeah, 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 yeah. So how do you find that balance for yourself? Um, how, or how, what did that moment teach you about where that balance lives? You know, it was funny. I have, you know, I love my mother very, very dearly. Um, but I've been pretty honest on podcasts and in stories before about how uh, she was pretty hypercritical about little stuff like don't use so much facial expressions, don't, you know, enunciate more, don't walk like a girl, you know. Um, she was very concerned with us being, with being conformist, you know. And, and when I came out, <laughs> when I was 18 years old, a couple of days later we're in the car and she looked at me and she was like, is this just another way you're trying to be a nonconformist? <laughs> so... You know, I have always carried around in my head a lot of second guessing about every little way that I present myself. And after the state broke up, I was hyper aware that I had been in a very safe group for eight years where we had a lot of actual power when we would sit down with people from MTV or Viacom or whatnot, because there were 11 of it. You know, to, to, if you were going to say, hey, uh, this isn't funny, I think it's easier, easier for a television executive <laughs> to tell that to like one or two people than to 11 <laughs> right. who all agree it's funny. You know what I mean? Right. So there was a lot of safety in being in that group. We were always there to catch one another if we fell. And when the group disbanded, and I particularly kind of went back into my black sheep, you know, I was in my own family, I, I was of five kids. I was always the one who was off in his own universe. So I had kind of become that a bit in the state too. And when the state broke up, I really withdrew and retreated into my own universe for a while, which was a mistake. But whenever I did meet with network executives or whatever about like pursuing a, a sitcom career or, or commercials or anything like that, um, there were these boxes they were trying to put me like, oh, you're, you've got to be like a super, um, I don't know, a uh, uh, benign gay redhead from yep. the Midwest or right. whatever. You know right, what right, I mean? Right, right, right. Like, <laughs> like a repressed hotel manager or something. Right. Yeah. And so I always tripped up at auditions because I felt like I was trying to be someone else, not just someone else in the character, but just in the room meeting people, you know? And so Risk was really a sort of a F you to the voice of my mom in my head. Yes. Uh, you know, another thing is that she was always very, very, very critical about uh, any talk about sex 
or uh, religion. And and any time an episode of The State came out on MTV, I'd get a phone call about if sex or religion had come up, and she was very upset about that. And she used to say to me all the time, why are you trying to be George Carlin? You should try to be Bill Cosby, which which is now very, (laughs) didn't age well. Whoops. But anyway, yeah, by the time I was creating Risk, I was kind of saying F you to that voice of mom in my head, but also the voice of the industry that, like, I don't know, I I just felt like wanted me to be whatever, and I I didn't know how to fit into that. And so I was trying to create something where I could find a way to be myself in public. And that's what that first experience uh-huh. at UCB telling that prostitution story was was like. So if I'm hearing you right, leading up to that story, Margot has basically invited you to be the person everyone for your entire <laughs> life has said, don't do that. And you have sat in professional meetings being told, <laughs> if you are your real self, no one will like you. Right. And... She says, no, that's the version I want. Mm-hmm. You have this fear response come up because that's what you've been trained to have when you are on the precipice of letting that part of you out. Yeah. And then, of course, when you are just yourself on stage in the way that you were in that show, you realize that all those fuckers were wrong. <laughs> yeah, and I mean it. Took, it and, and it's a never-ending process. I, I don't was, mean to call your mom a fucker, by the oh. way. I didn't. <laughs> I, I, that came off in a way I didn't intend. <laughs> um, I meant the network executives. <laughs> them, I'm comfortable calling them. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a never-ending process. I was very inspired by. Mark Marin at the time, mm-hmm. he was in the first live show of Risk and the first podcast episode. And his podcast was only, I don't know, maybe a couple of months old at that point. I remember actually very well when both of you guys started. Yeah. Um, it, I think he started like 2008, maybe 2009. Yeah. Late in the year. Maybe it was late 2008 and you started... 2009, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was new enough at his podcast. His podcast had not yet become a hit. Uh, So he was new enough that he was very encouraging because he did the first Risk show in New York. And then afterwards, he hung out and was like, you know, I really encourage, I love this idea. And I really encourage you to keep going with it. And let me introduce you to some people who can give you tips on podcasting and yada, yada. Um, And then I watched, I started listening to his show pretty closely. And I was like, oh, wait, because I was very intimidated intimidated by mark back in the day and in, mm-hmm. in the in the mid 90s he used to host luna lounge yep and i used to perform there sometimes and was kind of terrified of him because he was really up on stage just like improvising really trying to be himself as much as possible on stage uh-huh. and it could sometimes be excruciating and right. he could sometimes be mean to, right to the audience <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but it but it was kind of amazing and awesome to me because he did remind me of carlin in that way mm-hmm. back mm-hmm. then mm-hmm. um and it was kind of intimidating and i could see why the industry yeah. shied away from him for many 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 years 
And now here, all these years later, he's making a podcast where he's just being himself, and that changed everything for him. Finally, yeah. after all those years, he's getting television offers and stuff like that because he's built his own audience on his podcast by just being himself. And the industry finally was like, oh, wait, 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 we, we get him now. People like him, you know? And so I was inspired by that and felt like I was kind of more or less trying to do the same thing with Risk. Yeah. And did that, like, if you think about the version of Kevin that was writing sketches with the state um, or doing the character shows that you were doing before you started Risk, did writing that material generating that material did it feel like your true artistic self or did it did it feel That's different That's a great question. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. So I knew I was gay from the beginning of consciousness like I was you know, I didn't have the word for it until I was about 5 but so it was really tough because I grew up in the 70s in Cincinnati, which was in a very, very devoutly Catholic family yeah. mm -hmm. and um, just a very kind of Republican town, right? Uh, and so, well, Cincinnati is actually, well, back then it was pretty famous for its sex negativity, the Maplethorpe trial, the Larry Flint trial, all mm -hmm, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and... I felt like sexuality kind of didn't exist there, much less homosexuality. So I was super conscious that there was this monstrous side of me that might end up sending me to hell and that might end up like, you know, I might lose all my friends and family if people ever found out about this part of me. So I did that comedian defense mechanism right in kindergarten. I realized, oh, I make people laugh and they're like, oh, okay, yeah, we see that you're weird, but weird in a way that, uh, you know, we get a kick out of. You know what I mean? Like, like right. so make them laugh before they're laughing at you, you know? Right. Weird is bad, but weird funny is okay. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, lest they ever find out this other thing about me, they'll already be primed in that way, right? Right, right. Um, so I grew up being a very, very, very good Catholic boy. Mm -hmm. And the story that became very archetypally, it's just stood out. I, I read it sometime in junior high and was like, oh shit, was Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Because I would be this super good Catholic boy most of the time. And then act like a total lunatic amongst my very closest friends in kind of like lashing out improvised craziness, right? When I got to high school, it was it, it came out in the biggest way because I was in the high school musical when I was a freshman and was just a good boy, good boy, good boy, good boy. It was Bye Bye Birdie, but we were doing it as if Birdie was David Bowie. It was 1984. <laughs> cool. Cool. Okay. <laughs> um, and so, yeah. So I'm in Bye Bye Birdie. Good boy, good boy, good boy. The first cast party comes around. And I realize that most people in the cast have not seen the other side of me, the, the kooky, crazy side. And for the first cast party, we went to get 
alcohol, and I had never had it before. And you're 14. Yeah. And got a bottle of Riuniti. I don't know if that still exists. Like, very <laughs> cheap rosé. Yeah. Uh, drank the whole bottle at this party, and grabbed a jar of mayonnaise, like took off most of my clothes, I think I was in my underwear, grabbed a jar of mayonnaise from the refrigerator and started running around the party yelling, get the mayonnaise! And then like <laughs> leaped, like there was a, like a railing, I, I like leaped over it and fell to a couch, like a story below. And, oh God. And I told everyone my name was, my name was Freddie in the script of Bye Bye Birdie, just a kid who has one line. And so I told everyone my name was Freddie Fuck Off that night. <laughs> and the next Monday, Monday at school, even the director, who everyone like was worshipped, this, this brilliant lesbian woman who was the director of our musical theater department, she was like, I heard. <laughs> I heard that Freddie Fuckoff is um, amongst us now. And so it really cemented for me the Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde thing that, oh, people will respond well if you're if you're you behave well most of the time and then every now and then you are a complete and total Mr. Hyde like lunatic. Right. And that got me into the state as well. Was that kind of acting out the Freddie Fuckoff energy? Yeah. The 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 night I stalked the members of the state uh -huh. throughout freshman year of college i i had seen this comedy show and i was like i'm just gonna get into as many classes as i can with those guys just kind of sussing out which classes they're taking and making sure i'm around them and one night in my sophomore year we're all at this punk rock bar called dugout <laughs> it doesn't <laughs> exist anymore somewhere on uh second avenue and um i went into the bathroom took off all my n nude nude <laughs> in a public bar classic Freddy fuck off <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and came out uh singing a wailing improvising a wailing song mm -hmm. running around the the bar and then of course before the bar staff could stop me. I went back in and put on all my clothes and sat down and Carrie Kenny said, you're crazy. You should hang around with us a lot more. And so again, it was that Whoa. like, yeah, yeah. The it, plan worked. Yeah, exactly. It's like it, those moments of acting out solidified for me that uh, acting totally crazy uh, really works. But you know what? I wish, I wish so much that I had taken improv classes. Sure. Because I never, in, in my time in the state, I never got acclimated to following through with a bit. Right. It was always moments of spontaneous, crazy mm -hmm. insanity, but not, oh, the two of us are going to keep improvising and start to build a character and a reality together. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and so I was not as uh, confident about that, mm -hmm, you know? Mm -hmm. So, yes, I did love, 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 love being in the state. But... Wait, before you go further there, can I just ask, was the pull to the folks in the state... 
that comedy felt like a place where it was safe to be Mr. Hyde? Yeah, 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 exactly. Where okay. where where, okay. where it was where one could be these kookiest, craziest, nuttiest parts of oneself. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And maybe not just safe, but safe celebrated. and celebrated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yes. that night that I first saw The State, uh-huh. uh, their very first show, the group was called The New Group uh, uh-huh. when they were at NYU. And <laughs> so <laughs> so wonderfully, like, pretentious in the best way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the Sterile Yak was the name of the <laughs> of the official NYU comedy group. Mm-hmm. And so this was like, a, oh, like, you, you had to audition to become a part of the Sterile Yak, and it was officially sanctioned by NYU. Oh, I see. So uh-huh. the new group was like the punk rock, like, we're our own group, and yeah. we, we're not going to rely on the, the NYU's auspices or anything. It's also um, just so like, and what do you call yourselves? We're the we're just we're the new group. Right. What's the joke? It's not a joke. It's just what we are. <laughs> and um, yeah, I saw the first show, and I was so bowled over. Yeah, because there really was an electric energy that night in that room, where not only did the audience seem to feel like they were watching classic stuff, you know, the audience was reacting as if this was, they were seeing like Monty Python doing their greatest hits rather than, oh, we're seeing a group perform for the first time that we don't know. Um, but the group itself seemed to be like, holy shit, yeah, we're, we love what we're doing and everyone else is too. Uh-huh. And I was like, I got to get in, into that group. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and it was funny because... I was with these two friends I had made at NYU thus far, around whom I'd never been anything but the good boy. And I said to them, I want to get into that group. I want to do everything I can to get it into that group. And they were like, you? (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. Yeah. So... Something that's fascinating to me about this is I've I've heard you say in another interview at some point. Uh, so if I'm understanding correctly, um, Mr. Hyde gets the attention of the state, mm. and then bringing his uh, spirit into that room <laughs> becomes a big part of your persona in the group, a big part of uh, the the nature of the characters you play in the sketches and things. But at some point you also asked the group if you could start your work sessions with check-ins, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Can you say what that was and where that came from? So when, by the time we had our own show on MTV, because the first show we worked on was a show that we were doing with other people, including Jon Stewart and, uh, that was a very short-lived show. So w- once we finally got our own show, uh, we would gather at like 10 in the morning and start working, you know, writing or or putting together sketches, whatever it was. And I was – I've always just been such a sensi- sensitive guy mm-hmm. that the group's tendency to use roasting – 
uh-huh. to put one another down a peg or compete with one another. Um, I just it didn't do well. <laughs> Someone who suffers from low self-esteem doesn't do well with all that. <laughs> <laughs> Although it's interesting to hear that that's not even Mr. Hyde doesn't go there. Right, you. right, right. Is 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 does not want to be like uh, cruel or anything like that. Yeah. Right. Um, so I suggested to the group, hey. I think it would be helpful if we started every day with like a half hour of everyone saying how they're doing. Because we were our own best friends. We were very insular. And, you know, sometimes there would be a lot of tension. And the jokes that were coming out of people could be really biting or or not even jokes or Sometimes people were clearly just depressed about stuff. Uh Uh, And so I thought it would be helpful if we started doing these check-ins. And it was very funny because Tom Lennon, after a couple of days of these check-ins, Tom was like, oh, of course, (laughs) Kevin suggested this because he's the one who always has these insane stories to to share about the sexual adventures he had last night in New York City. Because the rest of the group was all, that was another thing. I was the, was the member of the group who was not always hanging out with the rest because uh-huh. I had my gay life, you know? Right. Um, I'll never forget, I once invited all of my friends to a Valentine's Day party. I invited all my comedian friends and all my um, uh, gay friends, and only my gay friends showed up except for Jon Stewart. <laughs> who walked in the apartment and saw that I had cut anuses out of like dozens and dozens of porn magazines and and cut them into heart shapes and put them all over the wall. And he walked in and he saw basically just a bunch of gay men and he looked at the wall and saw these heart-shaped anuses and and he was like, yeah, I'm at the wrong part. (laughs) (laughs) Didn't even stay for a drink. Um, but anyway, um, uh, where were we? Where were we? Let me hang on that moment just for a moment, though, because I could imagine that regardless of whether it's Jon Stewart or any comedian, I could imagine that moment being a little, um, heartbreaking for someone in your position and feeling like, oh, I guess these worlds can't coexist. Yeah. You know, it it was, it was tricky. I mean, the. To to like flesh out the whole Mr. Hyde thing, that was e- e- even more so than acting crazy. It was my entire sexuality as far as like being a good Catholic boy was my entire sexuality was Mr. Hyde, right? And so getting drunk and going to sex clubs and having crazy adventures. I mean, there was a lot more cruising back then like you could you could have sex anywhere (laughs) (laughs) right and as people know from your stories you did (laughs) so yeah i was often getting into very 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 crazy situations and kind of loved it and it and it was definitely rather uh you know 
it was definitely drug and alcohol influenced behavior. Sure. Um, and and I think the actual story of Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde is about that too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but. Um, yeah, yeah. So so there was that aspect of things, too, that I felt like with my gay friends, I could be these sides of myself that I couldn't as easily be around my comedian friends, too. Yeah, yeah. Right, right, right. So what's interesting to me about the check-ins, I mean, I see Tom Lennon's point, I suppose, <laughs> but it's also a moment it seems to me, of you dipping your toe in the water of what if I could be both people oh, yeah. as a creative being. Yeah. Like, it's, it's, it's sort of a precursor to risk, it seems. Yeah. Is that fair to, to see it that way? Totally. You know what's so funny to me about storytelling is the more you do it, the more you see these seeds, you know? Um, it was Mike, Michael Ian Black who noticed in those check-ins you're so fun to to listen to your true stories right. he had kind of been poking me uh, with that idea for years because of the check-ins because of the check-ins he was the member of the state who noticed there's all this downtime whenever we have to reset anything on the set in front of this live audience you know a, a prop breaks and it's going to take us 15 minutes to tape that prop back up and reshoot that sketch and the audience is just sitting there michael was like i'm gonna go out there and talk to the audience and he would just improvise and be funny and charming and he was learning how to be himself and funny in front of an audience and i just was like I thought that was terrifying. It reminded it was, it was the way I felt about Mark Marin later. Mm -hmm. It mm -hmm. that was too daunting to me the the idea of just being myself in front of an audience. So yeah, a lot of creating risk was realizing that be, depending so much on memorization mm -hmm. and the affect of character was keeping me back, you know? Yeah. yeah. Well, I can see for someone with undiagnosed ADHD, the prospect of memorization being a, a pretext uh, or a prerequisite for having a career in entertainment being horrifying. And as you were just describing earlier when you were talking about your creative pr process with generating a story, you have come up with a way of crafting incredibly elegant thoughtful, thematically contiguous stories that doesn't necessitate sitting down at uh, in front of a word processor and like writing it all out and then uh, memorizing the text, but rather organically generating it from yourself, from talking to JC, talking to the hypothetical risk audience, and then noticing where it's working and not working and mm. just letting it organically take its own shape. Another thing, though, that I wanted to flag about that part of your process is you just kind of skipped over this thing you're doing that is actually quite remarkable, I think, Kevin, hmm. which is that you are able to go from sitting in front of the microphone, telling a story that is you telling a story to an invisible audience, whether hmm. it's JC or Invisible Risk fans, and then... It sounds like within the same recording session or work session to switch 
consciousnesses into that of an audience member or an editor mm. and listen back to the story that you have just told right. and say that part works, that part doesn't work, that part works, that part doesn't work. Right, right, right. What's that? Yeah, it's interesting. I think that when people ask me, how'd you learn to do this? How'd you learn to do that? I do realize that a lot of it has just been by doing it, you know, by by getting more and more used to, oh, you know, there are some stories that I've told that just landed like a lead slug. And some of them I have come back to and been able to spot, oh, I think I think people were finding me rather arrogant or, or whatever it might be mm-hmm, or, or, mm-hmm. or suspected I was embellishing or, or whatever it might be. Um, in, in fact, when, peop- when I'm coaching people, there's a very common thing that happens when people are working on stories where they'll say, I get to this point and I'm like, I don't know what to say because the truth is I had mixed feelings and I'm like, what you just said. (laughs) Yes, yes. (laughs) Tell the audience I get to this point and I don't know what to say because I have mixed feelings. (laughs) Uh Well, the moment in your own storytelling that you're making me think of, and again, please tell me if I'm misquoting this, but I saw you do this live on stage and it was a revelatory moment for me. There's a story you have of... It's like your first night in New York City Mm. and you go to Central Park (laughs) looking for sex. Yeah. And... You go into the bushes because you're like, maybe that's how you do it. And you rustle the bushes. And in the original version of the story, a businessman walks by and is like, what the fuck are you doing down there? (laughs) And then you fall asleep and you wake up an hour and a half later. You have no shoes. You get on the train. You throw up. Uh So you told that version of the story and you said, but this is the thing, everybody. (laughs) All these years I've been telling that story. That's not the true version. The true version is that. I hooked up with that guy. <laughs> and that fact changes the whole story. Yeah. Makes it way more interesting. Uh-huh. And it strikes me as a moment where you're you're like no 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 it, for the story to really work it can't be it seems like initially you thought the character of Kevin can't have sex yet for the story to work. Right. But the reality is that the character of Kevin isn't a character. It's Kevin. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I guess like, can you tell me about, because it seems like that's the moment you're sort of flagging for people when you coach them is like, you do know what to say. It's what's really going on. Right, right, right. Yes, that that, you know, in that case, with that story, I was both afraid. I, w- I was both uh, wasn't sure exactly how much the audience, you know, how risk was brand new. And that was the second story I ever told on the second week of when we were doing the show <laughs> weekly. Um, Just burning your best stories <laughs> right. Like, right out of the gate. Yeah. Um, and. I wasn't sure 
how much people were going to like me, how much I could admit to and all that kind of thing. Um, but also I felt like, oh, this, this story is a comedy of errors. So the, the goal I'm going after, I shouldn't actually achieve. Um, and, but, but it is much more interesting that the goal I was after I did achieve and it was still a complete mess. Right. Right. <laughs> right. Well, it, cause it, if I remember correctly, the takeaway from the the revised version of the story is less look at this dumb idiot <laughs> who's like foraging in the bushes for sex it's what was i looking for right 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 which is a much deeper question it's even more relatable right um cuz i mean we can all relate to like being young and like grasping at straws yeah but we can all really relate especially as we get older yeah to grappling with that idea of like i had no idea why i was doing this yeah. i didn't know what i was hoping to get right and i still don't right um, yeah that's that's super profound i told a story on risk long long you know early on about almost drowning in the Colorado River mm -hmm. and in the story there's this kind of there's almost a motif of what an idiot I am like who never had swimming lessons and then decides to, to try to swim across the rapids <laughs> of the Colorado River um so you know there's a lot of that in the story and I shared it with my therapist, my current therapist, and because I decided to pull it out again, dust it off and, and revisit it. And he said, you have no compassion for yourself in that mm. story. And I was really struck by that. It really made me kind of uh, look into that of, yeah, you know, I mean, and, and this is a, a very similar thing that's happened with some of rev revisiting some of my stories, looking through things from an ADHD lens of understanding of, oh, I can understand how I get overwhelmed sometimes and then do something that's in inexplicable. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Um, yeah. And, and I do think you're right. I think that that's very, very powerful to admit that you have maybe more questions than answers in some of your storytelling. Well, and you had also been told for much of your life that there was a true version of you that did not deserve compassion. Right. right. That's true. Yeah, that's right. And so it makes sense that you would create stories where that person is the butt of jokes. Mm, yeah, 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 yeah. But as you have matured as a storyteller, it seems you've like started to integrate those yeah those yeah. identities more you know this is like a little spooky but i can't get over the fact that the the whatever the drink was at that first cast party mm -hmm. that you drank the whole bottle of was called reuniti oh like reunite oh wow wow <laughs> that had never occurred to lots more to come with kevin allison right after the break you're listening to The Midnight Disease on WALT.
speaking of stories that I have I have heard you say you are workshopping. Uh-huh. I'm very curious about I listened to you on the um Coffee Before Suicide podcast. Uh-huh. And you talked about this period of your life you refer to as the belly of the whale. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is the period between the end of the state, mm-hmm. right? And yep. when you started doing the solo shows that eventually Michael Ian Black comes to see. Uh-huh. And you you go back to school, you get mm. a job at a publishing company. Yeah, yeah. Um, art, it seems to me in that time of your life, is not part of your consciousness or, or making things. Well, performing isn't because uh-huh. the thought was, the thought was, I had this Jungian therapist and it's a shame that she thought that comedy is frivolous. She, yeah, that's how how she put it. Yeah. She felt that I was probably a writer and that I should write the great American novel. (laughs) And so we... You're you're not still seeing this therapist. (laughs) Right. (laughs) We, I think that there was real collusion there, to be honest with you, because I was so... I was so filled with fear after the state had broken up of, oh my gosh, who am I without the rest of the group? Um, Do I have enough talent to carve a career for myself? Um, Oh my gosh, I experienced so much social anxiety in rooms like Luna Lounge where I'm surrounded by all these uh, big name comedians coming up. And it I I was just kind of flailing. I was definitely drinking too much and all that sort of thing. And I finally decided, I, I at one point, oh my God, at one point I pitched to her the idea of going going into the priesthood finally. <laughs> Good Lord. I mean, talk about like, you know, running away, yeah. you know, yeah. um, and trying to lock up Mr. Hyde forever. Yeah. Uh, and you could see how well that does for many priests. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, but what we arrived at was, no, no, no. I should quit the performing arts and go back to college, get a master's in English. And in the meantime, you know, uh, you know, maybe I could become an English professor and write novels and uh, I would uh, get a job in publishing to pay the bills in the time being. And it was it was really a running away period. I there was a weird period toward the end of it where I started trying to get articles published and was literally working on a story about. Stella about this this group of Michael Ian Black, David uh-huh. Wayne, and Michael Showalter had their own little comedy group uh, that was doing their own show, and I was writing an article about them as if, oh, I've left the performing arts behind, but now I'm a writer, and now I'm going to cover my friends as they continue on their road in that field. So, and that never came to fruition either. I can't, I, I can't imagine those were comfortable interviews to do. Yeah, it was just it was it was definitely odd and weird mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. 
And I think that they knew. I think that, you know, they were like, ah, Kevin, Kevin's a little lost right now. You know what I mean? Sure. Um, so, yeah, I call it the belly of the whale period. And it's funny because I was calling it that at the time. Like, I, I kind of knew. You knew. I'm kind of lost right now. Uh, the the phrase, you know, even though I no, no longer consider myself a Catholic, it's very hard to get all that language out of your head. And the phrase, knocking the door shall be opened, I had a lot of feelings about that because I felt like I was knocking and the door wasn't opening. Um, so it really was when I got an email from a woman at this book publisher that I was working at, somehow she somehow she found my email. And she said, wait a minute, are you Kevin Allison from the state? And I said, yeah. And she said, oh, my God, I'm starting a little school for writers. Would you like to teach a sketch comedy writing class for my little school? It was called Media Bistro. And um, I said, I was so disgusted with my how things were going in trying mm-hmm. to work in publishing and not be a performing artist anymore. I was like, hey, let me give this a shot. I'll, I'll, yeah, sure, 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 I'll do this. Standing in front of a room of about like 20 young folks, you know, mm-hmm. folks in their early 20s who were fans of the state and see, finding myself telling them stories that were sometimes kinky, sometimes very, very sad and like, you know, vulnerable, um, sometimes totally absurdist and and nutty. And I started to feel like, oh, I'm standing in front of a group of people telling stories about all these different sides of myself. Uh-huh. I think it was that that really had me finally be able when Michael said once one last time after that 2008 show, yeah. I think you should drop the characters and start telling your own true stories on stage. I think having taught those classes and mm-hmm. felt that way in front of those rooms uh, that I knew he was right. And I was like, yeah, I got to do this. Did you write the character show that he ended up coming to see coming out of that experience of teaching the courses? Like, was that what sort of called you back to Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Yes, yes, yes. That that after teaching that Media Bistro class, I went over to the pit to start teaching, uh, teaching sketch comedy over there because over there you could put on a show at the end of the class. I was like, oh, it would be a shame just to write. Let's get up on stage and as the teacher, I would I would get up on stage with the, with the you know in the shows too. Yeah. So I was I was once again, you know, enjoying experimenting and being ridiculous and uh, doing it in front of people, and I think that that really kind of lit the fire of me. Oh, I should write a show, and the show was called F Up, and all five characters were people who had basically fucked up their careers, their 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 life trajectories. Um, one was an alcoholic Shakespearean actor. <laughs> um, one was the creature, was Frankenstein's creature, who is really just doing his goddamnedest to set things right and just can't help but make a mess of things. Um, but 
One was extremely obvious what was going on, <laughs> and it was a vaudevillian performer whose partner, he had been in a duo, you know, like a Laurel and Hardy or something like that, and his partner had gone on to tremendous success, mm-hmm. and he was flailing behind. Mm-hmm. Um, so these characters in this show, F Up, were clearly like, stabs at autobiography, but maybe just a little bit too kooky and uh-huh. nutty. And 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 that's when Michael was like, I think he got what I was doing and was like, just just drop the act, you know, and, and mm-hmm. just start speaking as yourself. Mm-hmm. And so yeah, that's when I uh first tried that prostitution story because he 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 had said if i said it feels so risky and he said well go with that word it, you know that that's a good sign if you're opening up to people that'll mm-hmm. feel risk, risky and so i decided what's the riskiest story i could tell and at the time it seemed like admitting that i had tried prostitution was was a pretty pretty risky way to go. <laughs> Little did they know kink camp was on the horizon. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so it was it was one of the things that was such a, a a change that night when I did perform that prostitution story was f- feeling like I wasn't hiding behind carefully constructed memorized lines like feeling like I could literally d- drop the script entirely at parts and just speak directly to the audience yeah. and feel like they were... Every time I was afraid that those things that the mom voice in my head would criticize me for, oh, they'll think I'm too Midwestern, they'll think I'm too gay, they'll think I'm whatever. Uh, they just kept leaning forward more uh, because they were like, oh, he's being very honest with us. And... That created a really electric feeling in me that night. Yeah. yeah. You know, it, some, something that um, my partner Adrian and I often say to each other, when, like we just went to see uh, Strange Loop. Oh. Um, which is very much, I think, in the spirit of what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, a, it's a musical about a guy writing a musical about a guy writing a musical about a guy writing a musical. <laughs> and he's basically airing all of his... Um, subconscious fears and demons and um we saw gerard carmichael a couple nights before that who is also does a kind of stand-up comedy that you could barely even call stand-up comedy right just kind of sits in a chair and hunches over you saw him live yeah it was extraordinary wow it was extraordinary um and and actually in the spirit of what we were talking about earlier it was the same thing berbiglia does it was Uh at city winery it was like fifteen dollars and it was like, I'm working on what became his Golden Globe speech. Oh. Um, and he was like, I don't know what I'm going to say. Uh-huh. Um, and he was like, I just want to talk about it with you guys. But oftentimes when we see a performance like that or a performer like that, we'll turn to each other as a reminder to ourselves and say, all they want is you. Mm. All they want is you. Wow. And I was having a conversation for another project the other day. And my uh, collaborator and I were talking, uh, and she's a big fan of Joseph Campbell, mm-hmm. who I am woefully behind in catching up on. I've still never read uh, Hero of Many Faces. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess he has some phrase 
uh, like where you stumble, that's your treasure. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, that phrase just popped into my mind when you described that feeling of, as you said, the things that felt the scariest to feel, yeah. the things that have tripped you up throughout your life. Yeah. The audience was in the moment giving you the performance equivalent of treasure. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. That that is that is really, really, really great. And and I've continued to find that, you know, mm-hmm. because uh, people will write in, oh my gosh, hearing you kind of like walk through discovering that part of yourself made me realize I have something very similar about myself that I have to like keep uncovering, you know? Yes. Yes. I mean, I think that to me is when people talk about the power of the artist, I often think the power of the artist is not, sometimes it is their craft, but it, when it is their craft, it's their craft in service of that. Yeah. It's their craft in service of their willingness to present their stumbles as treasure. Yeah. Whatever form that takes. Um, but in that vein, I'm glad you mentioned that in, there was this period of time we were like, oh, I'll go back to school, get a master's in English. Um, because I used the word elegance to describe your storycraft earlier, and I really do mean that. Mm. Um, your deftness with words, your the musicality you deploy in your voice, mm. your ability to... Um, like blend the sacred and the profane. <laughs> um, you know, I, I know I'm not breaking any news here. Like the, this, these are things you rightly get a tremendous amount of praise for and that really magnetize me as a fan of yours to your work. And I'm curious, I know that in addition to, because the way we're talking about your process and your impulses, people who aren't familiar with your work could get the wrong impression that it's all about sex and sloppiness Mm. and just kind of fumbling and stumbling. Mm -hmm. Um, And the thing is, you often reference in your social media posts or in your hosting work, whether it's at the live shows or or on the podcast or just in conversation, um, you are in very consistent dialogue with poetry, painting, Mm. classic film, Mm -hmm. um, jazz. Mm Mm-hmm. All of which I would think of as elegant forms, mm. um, forms which are more about you know being line perfect on a script and um, a, a more kind of precise technique. Mm-hmm. So, what is your pull to those mediums, and how do you think it informs the way that you sculpt your stories? Wow, gosh, that's that's big. I think that when I was a child, I was pretty immersed in art. My my father, my father was a huge opera fan, and it was a very strange thing for a Midwestern dad whose other big obsession was football. Um, <laughs> like he never had anyone. Even my mom, like he would take my mom to the opera, but even she was just not all that into it. And so at a certain age, when I was eight years old, you know, my older brothers were huge into the football and I just didn't, <laughs> just didn't get those things at all. And he he realized, oh, I can take this kid, I can take this one to the opera. And that meant 
the world to me uh, that he started doing that. And like, I, I started becoming obsessed with opera and musical theater. And, you know, it's interesting. I always think that my becoming obsessed with Bob Dylan when I was um, in the seventh grade, like both his use of his voice and his the specificity of his lyrics in you know in the earlier or mid periods uh really really like also forged a lot of like my realizing oh the you know like the voice doesn't have to be pretty and you can say things very differently than mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. Be, you you think you might when i was 9 years old was the very first night i was allowed alone in the house because Normally, there was a brother or a sister or a babysitter or something. Mm-hmm. Nine, the parents were leaving. No one else was home. Dad, as they're walking out, says, oh, there's a good movie on TV tonight. You should check it out, Kevin. It's called Citizen Kane. And I was so, so grateful that he didn't say anything more than that, but really encouraged me to watch that movie. What a gift. Yeah, because I didn't have that... You know how you can't stand in front of the Mona Lisa and have any objective point of view of it? At nine years old, I had fallen asleep, so I was kind of in the hypnagogic state when I woke up to the beginning music of that movie, which is like horror music at the very beginning, and spent the whole movie like, what? <laughs> what is this? I was act- I was... I was actually a bit horrified by the movie and cried at the end because <laughs> I was so, you know, overwhelmed by what a what a strange and unique and special thing it was. And then, weirdly enough, when I turned on the lights, I realized I've been playing with this little matchbook hmm. in my hand the entire time. Hmm. And when I turned on the light, it was rosebud matches. <laughs> Come on, really? Not kidding. That's way spookier than Reuniti wine. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So I was kind of haunted by that whole thing. But the very next day, I went to the library and got a book called Understanding Cinema. And all of a sudden, I was obsessed with that. I think that one of the things that that young folks today, you would think that because they have so or because we all have so much access to so much now, that we would all be so much more educated. But somehow the limit back then of only having like three TV channels and literally having to go to the library to look something up, you know, um, helped us, I think, focus more and like go down paths of really deeper learning. Well, think about that. I mean, this is clearly a transformative experience, seeing Citizen Kane when you're nine years old. And... This, if I'm not mistaken, is a period of time where for that to happen, your parents had to be going out on the (laughs) night where it just so happened that Citizen Kane was going to be on TV Mm. at 8 p.m. or whatever it was. If they hadn't been out that night and you hadn't been sitting in front of the TV at 8 p.m., that moment doesn't happen. Right, 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 right. And that's not to say you wouldn't have had a similar moment from something else, but... It came about in a way that feels more serendipitous. Yeah. Because it is serendipitous. Yeah. And seren- serendipities 
even though they're really just randomness, some would say, feel significant. Yeah. Um, and it's hard to have a serendipitous moment in the era of streaming, Yeah, say. Right, right, right. So you've been telling stories you never thought you'd dare to share mm-hmm. and encouraging other people to tell stories they never thought they'd dare to share for 14 years now. Mm-hmm. Is there a story or a type of story that scares you in 2023 as much as the prostitution story scared you in 2009? Gosh, that's a really great question. I guess... I guess that there are – I mean, we have also in these 14 years watched the social consciousness evolve because, you know, when we started Riz, the whole idea was this is very unfiltered, uncensored, be raw, make mistakes, et cetera, et cetera. And that's one of the reasons I think that we don't have uh, celebrities on the show very much anymore. I mean, among many others, but – uh, that I think people are getting shyer and shyer. Uh, so, you know, it's difficult because in a lot of a lot of the, the the stories you're most afraid to tell, you're the bad guy. You know, you you did something that where you're like, oh my gosh, um, this is it's going to be hard to keep the audience on my side when they hear that I did this terrible thing, um, but. I think that I, I'm not as worried about those kind of stories because I feel like I mean I, I haven't I feel like I haven't done such terrible things, but I do worry about stories that I think are going to be too too scary for me. Stories where I have to look at myself even deeper into some of my flaws and even deeper into some of my regrets. And oftentimes there's uncomfortability in, you know, you were talking before about um, the barefoot in the park story. Mm-hmm. I was on a, a boating trip this, this past summer with a fellow I used to live in, with. And he was like, remember when we lived on gay street and you came back uh, and and said you had been in Central Park, and had, you 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 came back without shoes, and I was like, motherfucker, I wasn't. I was like, did did I have that story happening the first week? Oh no, I was in New York, and it was actually maybe uh-huh. like a year later. Uh-huh. You know that kind of thing where uh-huh. uh, like, oh my god, like in some cases, you're when you're constructing a story. In some cases, your memory is working toward your construction of the story rather than accuracy. Yes. <laughs> well, what you're describing is something that I don't think gets talked about enough amongst people who do this kind of work. Yeah. Which is that when you're living in real in stories from real life yeah. all the time and also thinking about them as stories that have been editorialized and narrativized yeah. for presentation 
the pressure of deadlines, the desire to impress. I'm just speaking personally. Yeah. The desire to impress, um, the hope um, for connection Mm -hmm. creates this blurring of boundaries. Oh, yeah. Between the the real and the unreal. Yeah. Um, And... It, it can put you uh, in a position where y- you feel like you don't actually know yourself because you've gotten so used to presenting this version of yourself that knows yourself. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So it's interesting to me, I guess, to go back to the stories you're, you feel some fear about is there's this dual fear it seems like yeah of can i deal with the feelings of shame feelings of regret yeah maybe compassion still yeah for yourself that um you'll have to muster slash navigate by addressing those things yeah and then also this awareness as a seasoned storyteller that like no matter how good the first version of those you present is it's going to be wrong on some level right 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 and it's going to have to be revisited so you're committing to living in that space for an extended period of time yeah i I can easily mention one that i've even said before oh i've got to work on that at some point is the story of my marriage i was i was uh my partner and i were together for nine years And we, right from the beginning, considered ourselves kind of like a married couple, right? Open, you know, non-monogamous, but very much uh, primary partners. We moved in within six months of of meeting each other. And at the time, he was in a martial martial arts cult, and, um, and I was that partner who spends years being like, I think you should extract yourself from that. And so a couple of years ago, he called me and he was like, can can I record a conversation with you? Because he's long out of it. And he, he was doing a solo show himself about that experience. He said, can I record a conversation with you where we talk about what you remember and what I remember about my time in that martial arts group? And I said, sure. And we talked for like an hour and a half, and uh, it was very, very helpful to him. And I said to him, I was like, Ariel, I have wanted to tell the story of our marriage on risk for years, but I've always been afraid of hurting you mm-hmm. by including any details that might hurt you, um, but also like having to, having to look very closely at parts of myself that... I still struggle with, you know, Um, and it was so vindicating that you reached out and had me talk about (laughs) trying to convince you for (laughs) nine years (laughs) to get out of that group Uh Um, and, and to have this conversation. I was like, could we have a conversation sometime about our entire marriage. And so that might still happen. I might still go there. And I think I think that does await me. I think that that would be very good 
ultimately for me to do. Yeah. But definitely the sort of thing like I just I just spent the beginning of 2023 totally reorganizing and cleaning my apartment mm-hmm. and it would feel like that you know what i mean <laughs> yes it's it's deep excavation <laughs> yeah well for what it's worth one of the things that i was reminded about in going back and listening to kevin goes to kink camp where you do do some excavation mm-hmm. of that partnership uh-huh. um is a feeling i had when i listened to it the first time which is that it's single voice narration mm. with some music, mm-hmm. but not even that much music mm-hmm. on, on second listen. I had remembered there being more music than there was. But it feels much more, you listen to it and you feel like you've been to kink camp. Oh, it, It's scenic and it, it, it feels like whatever the short film version of a first person story is. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess what I'm saying is, for whatever it's worth, I would listen to... Even if I had to wait several months between them, Mm. I would listen to so many more 90-minute Kevin Allison longitudinal stories. Oh, my God. Let me tell you, um, I had a conversation with JC just two days ago where I was just kind of bemoaning that, 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 that partly probably out of fear of you know that usual thing of well i i put out several of those in a row uh kevin goes to p-town king camp beyond king camp um and then got so caught up in turning the whole thing into a business yeah that it spread me so thin and also i think i got i started i did that thing i was telling my therapist about this just today I took a Meisner acting class when I was at NYU in sophomore year of college. And the very first scene was me and the guy who's married to Julianne Moore now. Um, (laughs) And he's a straight guy and I was gay and I was out. And the scene we were given was Kiss of the Spider Woman where the straight guy they're they're he, they're in it's a straight guy is in jail with a trans guy and the straight guy blows up in a homophobic rage at like the climax of the play and we were going to do that scene and we decided wouldn't it be interesting if Kevin was the straight guy and Bart was the trans guy uh and so I had to blow up in a homophobic rage at him and we really worked on on that scene. And it was like the second week of the this class. And we did it and we just blew everyone mm. away. Mm-hmm. And it was, you know, one of those really highlight of my life acting moments. At the end of the semester, Marquetta Kimbrell sat me down and she was worshipped. She used to work with Meisner. This is the teacher. Yeah. Okay. She sat me down and she said, I noticed something with you. You came in the first week, you did an extraordinary scene and never came back with anything like that again. Mm. She said, some people have this thing where they work really hard and they do something and then some sort of withdrawal or fear or procrastination or avoidance of 
going that far again sets in. Mm. And she said, be very mindful of that in your life and career. And so Jay-Z and I were talking about uh, me feeling like, man, I really do want to get back to some of those big long form stories right? Uh, and find enough time for the deep focus it would take to, to do them. And she was proposing, why don't you just have a goal of you know, give yourself a certain amount of months of doing one and and start just carving out time to do one again. Because back back in the day when I did those, it was guerrilla filmmaking. Totally. <laughs> totally. Totally. Well, and I, another thing I, I, I guess I think about that in the spirit of something we were talking about a moment ago is, I don't know if this is a voice that has been put in your head, but I could imagine it, is people hear stories like that and they think oh, this is notes toward this version of the story could become a book or could become right. a film. Um, and I feel so compelled to say like, no, Kevin Goes to Kink Camp is the perfect version of that story. Right. It it wants to be exactly that. It wants to be expressed in sound. Yeah. Um, and I feel like sometimes people think about a project like the one that you're talking about. Uh, I don't know if these are the thoughts you're actually having and uh-huh. think like, well, if you do it, then it will have all these other attendant things it has to become afterwards. But it's so, it, it wants to be the thing yeah. that it is so badly already. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I, for what it's worth, I would listen to every single one of them. Yeah. Um. I guess as a last question... There was a line this time, again, in Kevin Goes to King Camp, and not to fixate on this story too much, because I know you've told so many since then, mm-hmm. but it was this one line that feels to me like it's about more than just the King Camp story, mm. where you're actually talking about your marriage, mm. and it's the scene in Kevin Goes to King Camp where it's the polyamory workshop. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And... People are talking about the nature of polyamory and being non-monogamous, and there's this elderly couple there, and the old man says of his wife, who's sitting in the same room, we came here to be so open, and you're getting everything you need, and I'm getting nothing of what I need. And again, not to overuse this word, but you do this elegant thing where the hack version of the next beat in that story is that you go, oh, maybe I don't need to be open or non-monogamous anymore. But what actually happens is the story is about you stepping into that and embodying it fully Mm. as who you really are Mm. Um, with acknowledgement that there were times when in your marriage where you weren't able to give attention to your partner. So Mm. it's, it's um, it's not like you don't acknowledge him in that Mm -hmm. but in the course of making that case you have this line where you say this kind of tyranny of monogamy is the only option is not something culturally these days that is enforced by the church Mm. or by our politics it's artists who enforce it Mm. you say it's Beyonce it's Johnny Depp Oh my gosh. 
And I almost pulled my car over. Because what you're describing is so true, is, is broadly, I know there are still people who take their marching orders about cultural things from politicians, from religious communities. But broadly speaking in the culture, those values are lit up and irradiated mm. by art. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I wondered in that moment, does Kevin view it as his creative mandate to be an artist who does the opposite, who lights up, irradiates, humanizes the alternatives to those choices? You know, it's so funny because I've been with my current partner. There's been a, a tug of war between us. I became obsessed with Taoism in 2019. Uh, I was had said to my therapist for the 900th time that I had explored this kind of Buddhism and that kind of Buddhism and, and all these modalities of things. And I said, but they all felt like shirts that didn't quite fit in some part, you know, of the torso or around the shoulders or something. And I said, I feel like, I guess I have to like create my own religion. And he said, have you ever looked into Taoism? Because that's, that's what it is. And so I was like, oh. And so I started buying all, you know, uh, the Tao Te Ching and all this stuff and reading up on it. And the balance between insisting on, no, no, I know no one else does it this way, but I, this is me being me. And the balance between that and then sometimes being a real mess or uh, a jerk or totally irresponsible, you know, like it's very easy to lose the thread between I'm just trying to be me and being a bit out of control with things. And this was my, what my current partner was telling me about how much he appreciates my insistence on marching to the beat of my own drummer, but oftentimes... <laughs> <laughs> the mess that I make <laughs> is too much. And so, yeah, I think that that is, that, that is something that I can start exploring in stories now, too, is this whole idea of how confusing it is to insist on doing things your way like for like like polyamory is the perfect example of that like i feel like i'm always explaining <laughs> to the people i date that no no we have the right to like talk through the dynamic we want to have because we've decided that's what we want yes you know? yes <laughs> um and yeah, the 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 the, the how, how confusing and, and and challenging it can be to carve your own path, but do so optimally to 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 make sure you're cultivating yourself still to become the optimal you, not 
not the most indulgent you, you know? Yes. Yeah. Yes. I mean, in a way, it's... Um, it, it it goes back to Freddy Fuckoff yeah. and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. It's how can... How can Doctor How can Doctor Jekyll acknowledge the existence of Mister Hyde <laughs> and not view them as discrete entities that have nothing to do with each other? Right, right, right. Um, and maybe not even privilege Doctor Jekyll all the time. Right. Um, you're making me think just in the in the spirit of reunity and reuniting. Um, you at an early age, realizing that you had these divergent parts that were ultimately reunited in after Margot's storytelling show that first time. Yeah. The hack version is that, like, once that reunion happened, it was complete. But the reality is that we are constantly yeah. diverging and reuniting with ourselves. And, you know, that it is it is the mission of the artist to pursue each sequential reunion yeah and always know that it's never the last one yeah that's absolutely right it's that you know joseph campbell was a huge fan of carl jung and and i'm a huge fan of carl jung too his whole thing was there are these parts there are these archetypes within you and you know what's more archetypal than dr jekyll and mr hyde you know um and it is as you grow older, and he specifically talked about the midlife crisis, especially as being like where it becomes more and more and more important to have compassion with yourself, to be accepting that you're never going to be perfect, you're you're never going to realize all your ambitions, um, but to bring more and more those disparate parts of you together as honestly and as you know unapologetically as you can risky business <laughs> <laughs> that's it thank you kevin thank you this was really wonderful The Midnight Disease is hosted, produced, mixed and edited by me, Sam Dingman. My thanks to the one and only Kevin Allison for joining me on the show this week. If you would like to learn more about Risk, visit risk-show.com or look up the show at Risk Show on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. You can also visit kevinallison.com if you want to work with Kevin directly on one of your own stories, which, having had the pleasure of doing so in my own life, I could not recommend more highly. This music that you are hearing right now is a combination of a record skip in the Dave Van Ronk record Folk Singer and a composition laid over top by Mr. Evan Viola. If you are enjoying what you hear on The Midnight Disease every week, please say so publicly. <laughs> Leave us a review in Apple Podcasts or Spotify. I know that you hear podcast people say it all the time, but it really does make a difference in helping new folks find the show. Thank you for letting your madness ride with mine. We will be back next week with another great conversation. And until then, keep driving, Midnight Cruisers. <laughs>